All right, well, you can tell we've been in a series through a book of the Bible that's all about divine judgment for maybe just a little too long when we start doing videos like that. So um, I'm not really sure how else to segue out of that, but hope you enjoyed it. Um, well, hey, it's good to see you. We doing all right this morning, Bridgeway? Yeah. All right, well, hey, my name is Brian. If we haven't met, we are in part five of a series through the book of Micah called Who is Like Our God? So if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I want to invite you to open to Micah chapter Five, that is on page 778 on the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. And as I alluded to a moment ago, and as uh, my colleagues have talked about throughout the series, uh, the book of Micah is a book uh, that is largely about divine judgment. If you're looking for just some like nice, gentle encouragement, Micah is not a great place to go. You don't find a lot of book or verses from the book of Micah on coffee cups, for example. There's just not a lot that fits that description. It's a It's a challenging book to read. It's a challenging book to preach. But that is not to say that it's not without uh, immense value. As a matter of fact, I love the book of Micah. I love so much of the message behind the book. So much so that actually my uh, my second son, his middle name is Micah, named after Micah the prophet. Because I always want him to be aware of divine judgment. No, just kidding. Um... You're like, that doesn't seem very nice. Um, but no, because I want, when I, when I think about, when I picked that name for my child, I picked it because of something I want him to understand about God. And Micah's message is so much about God's heart for justice. Micah's message is so much about God's heart for the oppressed and God's heart that his people would treat other people well and that they, again, would care about justice. And in the midst of all of this divine judgment, in the midst of these very difficult messages that are found in the book, there's actually quite a bit about hope. And that is perhaps no place more true than it is in Micah chapter 5 that we're going to look at this morning. I've entitled this message, Unexpected Freedom. And I want to quickly draw your attention to the fill in the blank, either on the sheet in front of you or on the app if you're using that. And the fill in the blank is this. Jesus wants you free. Jesus wants you free. What do I mean by that? Jesus wants us to be free from anything and everything that might hold us back from walking closely with him. Jesus who made us to know him, Jesus who made us to find joy in walking with him, wants us to be free from anything that would distract us from that. Jesus wants us to have the peace and joy of knowing him fully. And he wants us to be free from anything that would hold us back from becoming who he has made us to be. Now the problem, of course, with that, and you all know this, is that we live in a world that in many different regards wars against the freedom that God desires for us. (laughs) Many of us, if we're honest, we have hearts that tend to war against the freedom that God wants for us. As we get distracted by different things, we face life circumstances that war against our freedom. We make decisions that war against our freedom. We give too much of ourselves to different things in our lives and that restricts our sense of freedom. There's just a lot going on in the world, a lot going on in our hearts that can lead us away from the voice of God, that can lead us away from the freedom that God wants so much for us. But the good news about that is that God who loves us is not good with that arrangement. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be free from the voices that would lead us away from Him. He wants us to be free from that which would distract us from His best. And in our passage today, we're going to see some of the ways that God wants to make us free. We're going to see that God's ways of making us free, God's ways of exerting His power, are different than the world's ways. 
We're going to see one of the most significant prophecies about the coming of Jesus found in all of the Old Testament. And we're going to see that real hope is found in the freedom that God brings. So with that, let's jump into the text. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, bottom of page 778. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This passage begins with a description of humiliation and defeat. If you've been here in the first four parts of this series, you know that so much of the first four chapters of Micah talk about God's judgment on Israel because of their sin and disobedience. So this chapter five begins with a description of kind of the result of that, that Israel is in a place of humiliation. This vocabulary of striking on the tr- striking with a rod on the cheek, that is not an act that is meant to injure as much as it is an act meant to humiliate. So Israel is embarrassed. Israel is defeated. Israel has been cast down. It's not a good day in Israel is what I'm trying to say. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The text tells us that this state of humiliation will not be their state forever, that God has given Israel over to their enemies for correction, but that that is not going to be their state forever. God will one day restore them, and he's going to bring restoration By raising up a ruler in Israel. And that ruler is going to come from a town called Bethlehem. An utterly insignificant village in ancient Israel that was located about six miles from Jerusalem. Bethlehem is so unimportant, and we we see this in the Micah text. It's so unimportant that in Joshua chapter 15, there's a list of all of the different clans of Judah. And it is a very extensive list. All of the clans of Judah are on this list. And Bethlehem didn't even make that list. If you were looking at a Google map of ancient Israel, you'd see, you know, Jerusalem front and center. You'd have to zoom way in to see Bethlehem, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. And in fact, the word little in chapter 5, verse 2, isn't meant to connote small size as much as it is meant to connote insignificance. Bethlehem was hardly the sort of place that you'd expect God to raise a great ruler from. It wasn't a popular destination. It didn't have a large population. Again, it was shocking to think that this is the place that God would choose to raise up a ruler for Israel. But I mean, you think about it, that's kind of the way God works, isn't it? Like he is God who works, does he work in centers of power? Sure, of course he does. But God is a God who seems to work in out-of-the-way places. I mean, in Micah's day, anybody would have assumed that if God was going to raise up a powerful leader, it would come from, he would come from Jerusalem. But Micah is saying, no, no, the religious establishment in Jerusalem is totally corrupt. But God is working in Bethlehem. God is working in Bethlehem. And it remains true today that God works in places that are forgotten. See, you and I, we're attracted to power and prestige and influence and charisma. But I believe, with with all my heart, I believe that some of the most powerful ministry in the world today is happening in out-of-the-way places, in places and through people who will never hear about this side of heaven. And don't get me wrong, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with building a following and seeking to use your gifts to serve that following. 
But I believe some of the most powerful ministry happening in the world today is happening through people who will never speak at a conference, who will never write a book, who don't have thousands of Instagram followers, heck, who may not even use Instagram. Believe it or not, God can work through those people. And again, I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad, but maybe we never forget that God's pattern throughout history is that he works behind the scenes in forgotten places. While the world is watching Jerusalem, God is working in Bethlehem. While the world is watching the religious leaders, God is at work amongst the poor farmers. I remember about 10 years ago, this is an embarrassing story to share, it was about 10 years ago, I spent a week on the island of Trinidad, right off the coast of Venezuela. And prior to going on this trip, the only circumstance under which I'd ever heard of Trinidad was from watching sprinters in the Olympics from Trinidad and Tobago. I didn't even know where it was. And I get to this small island, the church I was on staff with at the time uh, was, had some partnerships on the island, and they had sent me down to kind of explore the possibility of us sending a short-term missions team there. And I remember when we were there... One day I saw these signs on the side of the road talking about how God was going to do a great move on the island of Trinidad. And even there may have, I, details are a little fuzzy, but I feel like there was even one sign saying that when, when Jesus returns, that he's going to return to Trinidad. And I remember in my ethnocentric ignorance, literally sort of scoffing at that sign. <laughs> great move of God in Trinidad. Come on, Trinidad, really? Come on. When God's going to do something big, it's going to be in New York, or it's going to be in Los Angeles, or it's going to be in Chicago, of course, all American cities, or it's going to be in London, or it's going to be in Berlin, or it's going to be in Jerusalem. Come on. It's not going to be in Trinidad. And that thought had hardly passed through my mind before I was immediately struck with my ignorance. I was immediately struck with my ignorance. Does God work in big population centers and centers of power? Sure. But may we never forget that the history of our faith is primarily a history of God working through ordinary people in out-of-the-way places, out of the spotlight, to accomplish extraordinary things for His glory. That that is the way that God works. And I think that's really good news for ordinary people like us, because we can know that the God who works in Bethlehem is working in your life. See, we think there's a limit on how much God can use us because we we live in a culture where we're so connected. We see all these other people or we look at other people and say, well, I don't have the charisma that they do. I don't have the influence that they do or I don't have the following that they do. Or here's all the reasons why God can't work through little old me. And I just want to say to you, get your eyes off Jerusalem. Look at the Bethlehem of your own life and know that God is working there. That the God who God works in Bethlehem and he works in your life. He works in your life. And so Micah says, A great ruler will come from Bethlehem. And as of this writing, there was some precedent for this. Because the one thing that Bethlehem had going for it, the one thing that put Bethlehem on the map, was that it was where King David came from. That was their one claim to fame. And Micah says that a new ruler will rise up and he'll be a part of the Davidic line. He'll be a part of the Davidic line. Now, question. I alluded to this at the beginning. Who is this ruler that Micah is referring to? It's church, people. Come on now. If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus. I get it. I ask a lot of rhetorical questions. So it's like, does he want us to talk back to him now? Yes. Jesus. He's referring to Jesus. This is a messianic prophecy. A prophecy that foretells the coming of the Messiah. He will be a king from old, from ancient days. In other words, he will come forth from a kingly line. And this phrase, ancient days, means he will be a king from eternity past. This passage helps teach us a a Christian doctrine that we call the doctrine of pre-existence, which is the idea that Jesus existed before 
all time. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that that Word is Jesus Christ, and that He existed in the beginning. And Micah affirms that and says, this is going to be a king from ancient days. So Jesus has existed before all time. This is the king that Micah is referring to. But it is in Bethlehem that he will enter the world. As a matter of fact, you don't need to turn here, but listen to what Matthew's gospel tells us in Matthew chapter 2. This is a famous story. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, this is the, this is the, the part right here. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What is that? It's a very close paraphrase of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? To fulfill the prophecy of Micah chapter 5. And in this story in Matthew 2, they understood that to be the case. Verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This reference to labor is just a reference of the oppression that Israel would be feeling at the time of the Messiah's birth, which indeed they were. They were under Roman oppression. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. The, the language in these verses is just incredibly rich. So I want to I focus on them a little bit more than we'll focus on the rest of the the chapter. These, these verses tell us so much about the character and power of our King. So I want to look at what do these verses tell us about Jesus? Number one, this ruler Jesus is described as one who will stand. He won't be the sort of leader who waits to be served. He is the sort of leader who uses his power to serve. God's power is not like earthly power. He uses his power to serve and to bless. Jesus stands ready to serve and to care for his people. And it says he will shepherd his people. The Bible repeatedly uses this metaphor of a shepherd describing God and his relationship to us. He will shepherd his people. David famously writes in Psalm 23, what does he say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus in John chapter 10 says that he refers to himself as a shepherd. He is a good shepherd. And we need to remember a good shepherd does not give up on his sheep. A good shepherd cares for his sheep. A good shepherd is patient with his sheep. A good shepherd walks alongside his sheep and will not abandon them. Do you feel that God is abandoning you? Do you feel that God is wanting to turn away from you? He will not do that. He is your good shepherd. 
He is your good shepherd who watches over you. He is a shepherd ready to serve. And then with what strength will he serve and lead us? What strength will he serve and lead us? Micah chapter 5 says, He will serve with the strength of the Lord. What is there that limits the strength of the Lord? Nothing. Nothing. As Jesus leads us, He is not constrained by a lack of resources. He is not constrained by a lack of power. He is not constrained by a lack of understanding. If I try to lead myself, if I try to be my own highest authority, I am constrained in all of those ways. I am constrained by a lack of power. I'm constrained by a lack of resources. And God help me, I am constrained by a lack of understanding. Right? But Jesus is not constrained in such a way. He is not constrained in such a way. He is a good and all-powerful shepherd who leads his sheep with kindness and wisdom. And then I love what the text says. It says, and his name shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus is not just a king for Israel. Jesus is a king for all creation. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that a day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, every earthly ruler rules in a particular place. Their authority is limited by the geographic area over which they are ruling. And then they rule for a particular amount of time. Every earthly leader that comes to power is either voted out, conquered, overthrown, reaches a term limit, or dies. Or leaves office voluntarily. You pick any earthly leader, but every earthly leader, their term ends in one of those ways, right? And they only have authority over a particular area. Jesus faces no such constraints. He is a ruler over all people. And He is a ruler for all time. And then under His reign, we will dwell secure. He will stand for us. He will shepherd us. He will defend us and care for us with His omnipotent strength. And His reign will be great to the ends of the earth. And then I love these next words. It says that he will be our peace. That he will be our peace. The prophet Isaiah, in his prophecy about Jesus, one that we like to read around Christmas time, said this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The coming of the Messiah is connected to this idea of peace and wholeness. See, Jesus wants you to be free. So so fundamental to His ministry, fundamental to His ministry is the idea of peace, is the elimination of that which would hold us captive and remove His peace from us. So in, in His life, He spoke up for the oppressed and the hurting. In His life, He reached out to and spent time with the spiritually lost. In His life, He got down and He looked people in the eye to restore the dignity to those who had had their dignity taken from them. That was Jesus' ministry, was to bring about this sort of peace. When Jesus is ruling and reigning, there is peace. When Jesus is ruling and reigning in our hearts, we are free from the captives of selfishness and greed and envy and dishonesty. When Jesus is ruling and reigning in our hearts, there is peace that transcends circumstances. See, listen, when we talk about bringing the wholeness of Jesus to a broken world, which is something we talk about a lot here at Bridgeway, this is what we're talking about. This kind of peace, this peace that Jesus brings. 
And then next, Micah talks about defense against the Assyrians, that there will be seven shepherds and eight princes of men to be raised up against them. Now, I am no military strategist, but that does not seem like a very good plan. Seven shepherds, eight princes, whole Assyrian army, go. I don't think that's going to end well. What does that mean? It's a Hebrew literary device. Essentially meant to, it's, it's, it's the, it's the prophet's way of saying that the people of Israel are going to be defended in every way that they need. And then the Assyrians, scholars believe, that's meant to just be a representative of God's enemy, the enemies of God's people throughout all time and place. For Micah, it was the Assyrians. For different times, it might be different groups of people. The point of the verse is simply to say that God's people will be protected. That God's people will be protected. Then verse 6, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Just really quick, it's important to point out the future orientation of a lot of these promises. Micah is not saying, hey, the Assyrians are coming and God is going to stop them today. He's not saying the Assyrians are coming and God is going to stop them tomorrow. He's saying, no, I need you to understand that a day is coming when Israel will be delivered from judgment. That this judgment you're about to face, the Assyrians are coming and it's going to go badly for you for a while. But a day is coming when you will be free. We saw this if you were here for our Habakkuk series a few months ago. There was that same kind of idea. That the prophet Habakkuk was giving these prophecies to Israel to basically tell them that peace is coming. Not tomorrow. But it's coming. I need you to write down these prophecies so you remember them. A day is coming when they will be free from judgment. A day is coming when the freedom that God wants for his people will be. And and I think that that's important for us to remember. Because oppression and injustice and all of that stuff, it looks different, I think, in different times and different places. But we still experience a lot of that in our world today. There's still a lot of oppression. There's still a lot of injustice. And we need to remember That God's promise is that a day is coming when injustice will be brought to an end. A day is coming when God will will bring the complete freedom that He desires. And the power of injustice will cease. Does that mean we're to be passive? Does that mean we're to look at injustice in our world and say, Oh, well, God's going to take care of it eventually. No. Absolutely it does not. Pastor Parnell and Pastor Lance have talked about this. In, in, in In a world of injustice, the world is looking at us and they must not find us silent. So God's promise to bring an end to injustice is not a reason to be passive, but it is a reason to be hopeful. That the side of justice, the side of God's peace is the side that in the end is going to win. Is the side that's going to win. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. In those verses, we get two radically different pictures of Israel's function among the nations under the reign 
of the Messiah. First, they're compared. It's, it's so nice. The first, first one. It's so sweet. They're compared to dew on the grass that brings life and vitality. And this is especially true in ancient Palestine where it doesn't rain from May till October. Dew wasn't just sort of a nice thing in the morning or certainly in a pre-scientific society. Dew wasn't just like, well, there's no clouds and the ground is wet. I wonder how that happened. Dew was essential for survival, for the survival of their crops. And the ancient Israelites, they, they saw this dew literally as God's gift to them for their provision. See, the idea that Israel would be dew for the nations is the idea that they would just be conduits of God's blessing out into the world. Isn't that a nice picture? But then things take kind of a violent turn in verse (laughs) 8. Israel will also be like a young lion who tears things to pieces. Not as sweet. Not as sweet. I like that first one better, didn't you? Not as sweet. (laughs) But the idea here is simply that for rebellious nations, for rebellious nations, Israel will serve as a tool of God's judgment. That Israel will serve as a tool of God's judgment for nations that remain in rebellion. Now, In the final few verses of Micah chapter 5, the prophet turns his attention, or I should say God speaking through the prophet, turns his attention back to Israel, not talking about what will be done through them, but rather talking about what God is going to do in them. And I want to set up these verses really quick just by saying this, that our fill in the blank is that Jesus wants us to be free. And that's really true. And throughout the Old and New Testament, One of the consistent themes that we see is the theme of captivity and freedom. Captivity and freedom. That God God bringing freedom to those who are held captive. Perhaps the most famous story goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They cry out to him. God raises up Moses, and then God through Moses sets his people free. There's captivity, and then there's freedom. There's captivity to literal foreign powers, And then literal, physical freedom comes from that. And there are many other instances in the scriptures of God delivering his people from oppression. God rescuing his people and restoring restoring them to his land. There are all these stories of physical captivity and physical freedom. But there's also a different kind of captivity that is talked about in the Old and New Testament. And I think that that captivity might be a bit more relevant for us as 21st century Americans who at this moment are not currently like Israel was in many times, we're not currently living under the oppression of a foreign power. That's just not our reality at this moment, and I pray it is not our reality ever. But it's not our reality now. But there is another sort of captivity that we all face, and that is the captivity to something that the Bible refers to as idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is taking any physical thing and elevating it above God. In our lives, taking anything, any created thing and valuing it above our creator, God. And God is unequivocal throughout the Old and New Testament about his desire to see us get rid of our idolatry. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with idolatry. Idolatry is very easy to see in other cultures. We could visit another culture today. Or we could perhaps uh, dig up you know, remains from an ancient culture and we see maybe statues to their gods and goddesses. We see shrines to their worship of their different gods and goddesses. And we might say, okay, like that's pretty cut and dry. Like that's idolatry. That is worshiping something above the real God. 
That, that is taking something that is make-believe or that is a part of the physical world and elevating it above God. You look at statues, again, and all these physical representations. Pretty easy to see. It's pretty easy to see in other cultures. It is even, it can be easy to see in other people in our own culture. That you might spend some time with somebody and you might say, boy, well, they sure do get unnecessarily angry whenever this certain subject comes up. What if they got some sort of weird, like, identity idolatry thing going on there? Or boy, they sure do seem comfortable lying to protect this certain thing. Boy, they might, they might be maybe a little idolatry thing going on there where they value that so much that they're willing to be disobedient to defend it. So it's easy to see in other people, but it's real hard to see in the mirror. It's real hard to see in the mirror. I might be able to spend some time with you, and I don't have to know anything else about you to know that you are prone to idolatry, because that is simply part of being human. I am too. We could spend some time together, and maybe over time, I might get a sense of what your idols are, but you will have a very hard time seeing them. And you would get a sense of what my idols are, but I would have a hard time seeing them. And ultimately, Jesus wants us to be free from anything that would draw us away from Him. And our idols, those things we have so elevated in our hearts, they absolutely draw us away from Him. And Jesus wants us to be free of those things, not because He is insecure, not because it hurts His feelings when we're not close to Him. He wants us to be free because He has made us to be close to Him. He has made us to be in relationship with Him. He has made us to find ultimate joy and satisfaction in walking with Him closely. So in His grace and in His kindness, He wants to draw us away from anything that would inhibit us from trusting Him fully and walking with Him deeply. And see, that's what's going on in the last few verses of Micah chapter 5. God is going through and naming things that were keeping Israel from fully trusting Him. And he promises the destruction of those things. Israel had made these things into idols. They had made these things into their source of strength and security. When God is saying, no, 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 I want to be your source of strength and security. And so as we go through this list, I want us to keep in mind what I said a second ago. That this is the challenge of talking about idolatry. It is so easy to see in other cultures. It is so easy to see in other people. But it is really difficult to see in the mirror. So as we look at this list, I want to, can we ask ourselves, can we just ask God, God, as I look at these things, would you keep me from just saying, oh, silly Israel, why would anyone ever do that? And would you instead help me to see where am I doing this myself? So verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. Horses and chariots were symbols of military power. And you might be saying, well, wait a second. Why is God destroying their means of military power? Aren't there many times in the Old Testament where God sent Israel into battle? Yes, there are many times that he does that. That is absolutely true. But it is equally true that it is very clear throughout the Old Testament that God is opposed to militarism. The idea of building up these massive storehouses, massive amounts of weaponry so that Israel can go into battle being the biggest and the baddest. Why? Because God wanted Israel to know that he was the one who fought for them. And that if they were going to achieve victory, it wasn't going to be because they had superior technology. It wasn't going to be because they had the biggest guns, so to speak. It was going to be because God fought for them. And delivered them. In fact, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, kings were prohibited from maintaining professional armies and gathering war horses 
for themselves. Again, if they were going to win a battle, it was going to be because of the Lord's strength. It was, it was going to be, I mean, they went, they'll go into battle with some toothpicks and bouncy balls and somehow win. Like nobody's going back saying, man, aren't we awesome? <laughs> They're going back saying something's going on here. God is taking care of us. God is looking out for us. And there are so many, again, I could give you so many different examples where the tendency to trust in weaponry and military strength is condemned for Israel. But here are just two in particular. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In other words, God's saying through the prophet, like, what are, you, what are you doing? You're going after all this military technology instead of trusting me. Like, that's, that's, there's a disconnect there. Or Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he make, Micah makes the point further by saying, and I will cut off your cities and your land and throw down all your strongholds. God clearly sees massive military firepower as a hindrance to fully trusting him. And again, this is a point made over and over again in the Old Testament. God says to Israel, don't trust your stuff. Don't trust in trying to become the biggest and the baddest. Trust in me. I will lead you to victory if I'm truly the one sending you into battle. And you're going to know it was me because you're going to achieve victory even though you were outmanned and outgunned. Now, What's the broader point for civilians? What's the broader point for all of us? We're not, we're not living in Israel today. What's the broader point for us? God wants us to live in a position of dependence. God wants us to live in a position of dependence where we're not trusting in horses. We're not trusting in weapons. We're not trusting in money. We're not trusting in our status. We're not trusting in our influence. We're not trusting in our sense of personal authority. We're trusting in Him for our security. And God in His grace, may He remove those things that we trust in for our security beyond Him. Verse 12. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. So the occult or magic arts... Those had been prohibited in Israel since the time of Moses. But the mere fact that they're mentioned here shows you that Israel was still very interested in dabbling in these sorts of things. And God says, no, no, this has gotta, this has gotta go. And just so we're clear, this is not God condemning card tricks, by the way. Card tricks are awesome. But, but, this is God explicitly saying, I am God and I am enough for you. You don't need vague spirituality. You don't need a lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, luck is for pagans anyway. You don't need a crystal ball. You don't need horoscopes. What you need to do is to trust me. What you need to do is to trust me. And here's the deal. I would imagine that for most, if not all of us in this room, the idea of visiting one of those like fortune tellers or psychics that maybe you see on the side of the road, like I'm guessing that's not a live temptation for you. Like you might be like me where you drive by him and you're just real curious to know what the heck is going on in there. <laughs> but I don't think any of us see those things and think, oh man, if I were to go visit a fortune teller, they would go accurately tell me what is going to happen in my life. We go in and they say, you will face many challenges. How do they know? <laughs> right? Like none of us think that. None of, no, I hope not anyway. None of, us, none of us think that. But I do think there is a sense 
in which all of us, we want some sort of assurance that just kind of life is going to work out for us. We want some assurance that we're on the right track. We want some assurance that the decisions we make are going to turn out okay. Heck, we want some assurance that we're just not going to get hit by a bus next time we try to cross the street. But I want to suggest to you that there is some freedom, the freedom that God wants for us, in saying, I don't know the future, but God does. So I'm not going to spend my life seeking some angle on like understanding the mystery of the future. Instead, I want to live fully present today. I want to plan for the future with wisdom, but I want to live fully present today and trust God with what's coming tomorrow. See, a lot of us, we don't go to literal fortune tellers and we don't rely on literal sorcery, but we sure do spend a lot of time worrying about the future when all that time and energy could be much better spent living fully present for the glory of God today. So God says to Israel, all that secret spiritual wisdom nonsense, it's got to go. It's got to go. Verse 14. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Asherah images were wooden images that were made of Canaanite fertility goddesses. They were basically statues of Canaanite goddesses. And as Israel would interact with different cultures, one of the problems of doing that was that they would inevitably adopt the worship practices and the religious practices of these other cultures. That was why God was so against, in the Old Testament, things like intermarrying and things like that. Was It was about polluting their sense of worship. That, he, that God wants us to worship Him alone, and if we're going to do that, we can't be worshiping Canaanite fertility goddesses also, for example. So God wanted Israel to be pure in their worship. But this was still a problem in Israel. Again, Micah is condemning it because it was a problem. In fact, I even read this week about some archaeological finds dated to about the time Micah would have been born, or excuse me, Micah would have written. And it includes inscriptions and drawings, including one that says this, where somebody writes, I bless you by Yahweh, that is the name of the God of the Bible, the Lord, I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. Whoa. So basically, whoever wrote this inscription is saying, well, I bless you in the name of God and also this other goddess. Which, if you're new to the Bible, just to be clear, that is entirely in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. Right? That does not fit at all. At all. But it simply serves as an example of the pagan influence that had gripped Israel during this time. And the issue, this is important, the issue wasn't so much for Israel that they had abandoned God entirely. Certainly that was the case at different times in Israel's history. But the issue wasn't that they had abandoned God entirely, but they had added a bunch of other stuff onto their understanding of who God was. That God has revealed himself in his word, God has shown him who he is, and then they have added to that all of this interaction with different gods and goddesses from the culture Around them. They were allowing themselves to be formed and discipled by other influences. And again, this one in particular, perhaps more than any other, any of the other examples we've talked about, this one in particular is the one that where it's so easy to just shake our heads and look at it and say, Oi, Israel, what are you doing? Like, how could you do that? That is so ridiculous. Bless you, God and his goddess? Like, no. That's crazy. Why do we think that's so crazy? Because idolatry is really easy to see in other cultures. But it's very difficult to see 
in the mirror. Every culture has influences that would draw us away from our first love. Every culture has influences that would ultimately steal from us the freedom that God wants for us. Every culture, make no mistake about it, every culture has its Asherah images, including ours. So I want to ask you the question, what are those things in our culture? What are those things in our culture that would distract us from following Jesus closely? What are those things in our culture that would become idols for us? Things we might elevate to being the same as God or even above God. Or perhaps a better question to ask, instead of asking what are those things in our culture, the fact of the matter is we're a very diverse culture. We're a very diverse room. Not all of us are hung up on the same thing. So the question is what are those things for you personally? What are those things for me personally? Here, here's just some, just some questions I put together that can help us determine what are our, what are our idols? What are the things that are distracting us from God? What are the things, what are the voices we're listening to that are leading us away from what God would, would want for us? Some, some questions. Who or what is discipling us? Who, who or what is training us up? You and I are constantly being discipled all the time. The question is, who are we being discipled by? A similar question. Who or what is forming us? I pay attention to this in my own life. I just try to, you know, how do I respond to different media or TV stuff or stuff I listen to or just things I spend my time on? Like, how does it affect my mood? How does it affect the way I think about the Lord, the way I think about my family or things that are really important to me? I have to ask the question, what am I allowing to form me? What am I allowing to form my thoughts? What am I allowing to influence the way that I think? What voices am I giving access to my very moldable little brain? Right? Here's another one. What makes me excessively angry or anxious? What makes me excessively angry or anxious? When there's that just emotional reaction that perhaps doesn't justify the situation, that can be a key that we have touched on an idol. That we have touched on an idol. Or here's one. Where do I care more about defending my opinion or my side than telling the truth? Where do I care more about defending my opinion or defending my side than telling the truth. There's so many, so many stories out there today about how we're living in a post-truth society and that facts do not change minds. Why is that? I think we've made idols out of our opinions. We have made idols out of our opinions. In fact, and I don't, I don't know what to do about that. Like facts just don't change minds. And that is, that to me is a sign of idolatry. Question, another question. Are we being formed by God's spirit working through God's word? Or are we being formed by unbiblical ideas dressed up in spiritual language? There are many of those in our world today. Are we being formed by an obsessive desire for bigger, better, and more? I'm not against having new stuff. I'm not against enjoying the things you have. I'm not against going for the promotion. I'm not against any of that. But if we think that stuff is ultimately going to satisfy us, that is a game we cannot win. That is a game we cannot win. Here is one that I wrestle with profoundly in my own life. And I share, I I mean, I'm sitting under all of these questions, same as you. I just want you to know I wrestle with this profoundly in my own life and I feel an extraordinary amount of tension here. Are we neglecting the work of justice because we ourselves are not the victims of injustice? Are we neglecting the work of justice because we ourselves are not the victim of victims of injustice? The work of justice is uncomfortable. And our unwillingness to engage in it could be a sign that we've made an idol out of comfort. And here's another thing. The work of justice is rarely popular without the benefit of historical hindsight. 
It is rarely popular in the moment. It is only future generations will look back and say, thank goodness for those who fought for justice. That's a tension I feel. That's a tension I feel. Or here, here's another one. Where or when do I use the phrase, but what about, to avoid dealing with hard truth? When I get confronted with something, but what about, and point to something else. When I have to deal with something that's gross and just yucky in my own heart, maybe, maybe your spouse confronts you and, hey, this, this, and this. Where do you say, but what about, and start airing your grievances with them? Don't ever use it. Well, if you want to ruin your life, but what about, just use it over and over again. But if you don't, we're just, let that be a little alarm bell in your spirit. Where do I use the phrase, but what about, to avoid dealing with hard truth? And then I just finally, kind of my summary question, which I referenced a moment ago, or well, similar anyway. Whose image are we being formed into? We as Bridgeway, whose image are we being formed into? You as a human being, whose image are you being formed into? Me as a human being, whose image am I being formed into? What are the Asherah images in our culture? Because make no mistake about it, we've got them. Make no mistake about him, we've got him. And we need God in his kindness and his grace to reveal them. We need God in his kindness and his grace to free our hearts from our captivity to them. The hard part is recognizing them because it's so easy to see in the mirror. It's so, or excuse me, it's so easy to see in other cultures. It's so easy to see in other people. It's really hard to see in ourselves, really hard to see in the mirror. And in this passage, God speaking through Micah has some very harsh words to describe what he is going to do to Israel's idols, right? He talks about this language of destroying and cutting down and cutting off and rooting out. God is relentless in his destruction of Israel's idols. And as I was reflecting on this this week, this question came to mind. Is that God's judgment or is it God's grace? Think about that. God's destruction of idols, is that his judgment or is it his grace? I want to suggest to you this morning that it's his grace. That it is his grace. That it is his grace. When God does the work in our lives of exposing and removing our idols, that is pure grace. It might feel like judgment, don't get me wrong. But that is pure grace grace. Why? Because if you and I spend our lives chasing after idols, they will eventually let us down. They will eventually let us down. There's an extraordinary little book on idolatry, which I'll bet you didn't think you'd hear that sentence today. Um, Extraordinary little book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. And he says this, he says, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. It will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Our idols cannot fulfill us. Our idols cannot deliver on their promises. So for God to expose them, for God to reveal them to us, for God to help them, for for God to help us see them for what they are, that is grace. That is His kind, merciful, rescuing grace. So I just want to ask you, as we, as we wrap up, I, I, I wrestle with this question myself deeply and profoundly, and I, I share it with you to invite you into the journey. You're welcome. If a future civilization were to discover your journal or your social media 
profile or your digital footprint or whatever else there is that kind of gives a window into your heart and mind and thinking, what would they say your idols are? What would be the Asherah images that they would discover? And do you have the courage and faith this morning that God would expose those things in your heart? That God would reveal those things to you. That God might root those things out of your heart so that He may be ultimate. And in so many cases, our idols are not things that are bad. They're things that are good that we have turned into God. So we don't need God to destroy them as much as we just need God to put them in their proper place so that we can be truly free. See, too often I think we associate freedom with more. More territory, more authority, more money, more power, more this, more that. When I think the real unexpected freedom that God wants to give us, that freedom comes from God revealing our idols to us so that we want them a little bit less. So that we want them a little bit less. That's real freedom. The good news is that Jesus wants us to be free. And he wants us to be formed and discipled by him. He is a good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. He is a good shepherd who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And whatever is holding you captive, he wants you to be free so that your heart can be his. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. And we're just going to pray just to thank God for His grace that He is a God who reveals these things to us. He is a God who reveals our idols and He is a God who loves us enough to call us into the freedom that He wants for us. These men and women, they would love to pray for you. If you just need someone to pray, just to ask God, God, would you help me? Because these things are hard to see in the mirror. Would you help me to see these things in my own heart and my own mind? If you've got something that is on your heart this morning that is totally unrelated to anything we've talked about, these men and women, I mean, they're here for you. They would love to pray for you on that as well. So after I finish praying, the altar will be open and you're invited to come and receive prayer. Let's pray together. God who works in Bethlehem, thank you. Thank you that we can know that you are at work in our lives. And that you are a ruler and a leader who stands. You are a leader and a ruler who are our shepherd. You are a leader and a ruler who works with omnipotent strength. You are a leader and a ruler who looks to serve and not to be served. God, you are one who has dealt with us with such kindness and grace and mercy. And we are so grateful for that this morning. And God, I want to pray for myself and for all of us gathered here today. That you, God, in your mercy would reveal to us our idols. As you revealed them to Israel, would you reveal them to us? God, help us to not get stuck pointing out idols we see in our culture that affect others, pointing out idols we see in other cultures. But God, would we instead have the courage and the trust and the love for you to ask you to reveal our idols ourselves? God, you want us to be free. So we want to lean into that freedom. We do not want to be captive anymore. Would you expose our idols? Would you root them out of our hearts so that we might walk with you fully for your glory and our joy? And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend.